Hello and welcome to the Monash Perioperative Medicine podcast series. My name is Jonathan Nicholson and today I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Paul Miles, the Principal Investigator for the Relief Trial. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, John. Um, so we're going to just talk today about this relief trial. It's a, a, a large international randomised controlled trial um, looking at um, restrictive versus liberal fluid therapy in patients undergoing major abdominal surgery. Um, just to get a bit of a background, if you can just summarise a little bit about what the trial was designed to look at and, and why it was that you felt necessary to undertake this study. Well, I, although I'm an academic and do a lot of large trials, I like to think of myself as a practical anaesthetist. I certainly deal with um, uh, major abdominal surgical patients uh, most weeks. Um, and I've been following this fluid debate really for many years, then I certainly appreciate the arguments of why we should limit or reduce the amount of intravenous fluid given um, uh, for patients having all, many types of major surgery. But one of the concerns I've had is, well, firstly, there's not any large-scale definitive evidence from big trials, which I think are important to guide our practice. Most of the information supporting a more restrictive fluid approach have come from either small randomised trials or, or non-randomised trials. Um, and if we um, embrace a much more restrictive regimen, in other words, we reduce the amount of IV fluids that we give during uh, surgery and also afterwards, as an anaesthetist, the first thing that's going to happen, uh, in my practice at least, is that you're more likely to get hypotension. Uh, we see that at induction of anaesthesia quite commonly. Our traditional treatment of that is to give a bigger IV fluid bolus or mm -hmm. chase uh, the induction or the hypotension with further IV fluids, uh, even in the first 10 or 20 minutes of a, of a big case. And then through the operation, of course, if hypotension is recurring, then of course we would traditionally give a lot more intravenous fluid. Uh, that has been a practice literally uh, for more than 50 years. Mm. Um, so if we're not going to do that, we're left with two choices. One is we uh, treat the hypotension with vasopressors, either a pure vasoconstrictor or an inotropic vasoconstrictor. Now that suddenly adds a little bit of complexity, uh, perhaps a bit of cost and even some potential harm. You may need to insert a, a central line if you're going to run an infusion of a potent vasopressor. Um, you certainly uh, are at risk of perhaps causing some organ ischemia in some organs. Um, there's a, at least a, a likely reduction in cardiac output uh, for a pure vasoconstrictor um, agent. Uh, there might be a tissue leakage uh, during the, uh, the, op the procedure or afterwards so that there could be some tissue necrosis at the IV insertion site. Um, and equally, you're turning what is already a, a rather big operation uh, with a complex anaesthetic into something more complex. Mm -hmm. We're now really adding extra interventions uh, on what in the past we'd only treated simply with IV fluids. Yeah. Now, the alternative to that is not to treat the hypotension. Maybe our, our um, threshold for what we think of as hypotension is set too high, or at least in some patients. So we may have a permissive um, um, hypotension. Um, well, that's uh, a concept, that's a paradigm, but I don't think people at this point in time would be comfortable with it, particularly for the older patient um, typically uh, having abdominal surgery. Mm. 
So therefore, we've got to ask ourselves, well, is a restrictive approach actually the best approach? Is it the safest approach, particularly during the operation, but also afterwards? Because hypotension is very common uh, after major abdominal surgery. The patients are either on the general wards or even in a high dependency unit. Uh, they do require a lot of attention in that period, and hypertension would probably be the commonest complication in that first 24-hour period. So I believe it's a very open question. There's equipoise. There's strong arguments for and against, against a restrictive fluid approach, the perfect setting for a large randomised trial. Okay, so can you just briefly outline then the how you designed the trial, um, how you designed the two intervention arms, um, and which patients you were particularly wanting to focus on? Uh, well, I like large randomised controlled trials, and mm -hmm. my aim is to make them as practical or pragmatic as possible. In other words, to reflect everyday practice, not just here at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, but other hospitals throughout Australia, uh, throughout the world, uh, including smaller general hospitals and more, I guess, advanced um, uh, university-based hospitals. So in other words, the sort of operations and the sort of patients that anybody might be dealing with having major abdominal surgery. So we had a very inclusive uh, study population. Um, the second uh, important ingredient in these trials is to try and focus on the patients that are more likely to have serious complications. In other words, an at-risk population. Mm -hmm. We do this uh, for two reasons. One is, of course, that they're the sorts of patients we're most worried about. But equally, uh, you get more information in the trial. Uh, there's more trial events, you have more statistical power, and therefore the findings are likely to be um, much more reliable. So, so we target a higher risk population generally. Mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't mean that the results don't apply to a lower risk population. Uh, we know through experience of uh, perioperative trials, but e even major trials in all areas of medicine, that the results are, are consistent across the risk groups. Um, but the information becomes much more both reliable, uh, more powerful, um, and therefore gives us the information we need. And the last point, which in fact is the most important, is that it needs to be a randomised trial. We want to ensure that all other factors that could lead to a, uh, a poor outcome are balanced in the groups, with the one exception being the study intervention. In our case, it being the amount of IV fluid used. And so the two arms really were quite different. Uh, I see that you've, you have in the restrictive group approximately about 3.7 litres over the first 24 hours, including the intraoperative period. Um, and then in the uh, liberal arm, it was about 6.1 litres and, uh, in the first 24 hours. And, with the, the design, you obviously wanted to make sure that those were, there were two distinct groups and that the, there was no overlap. Yeah, so once again, uh, yeah, there are two important features here. One is, again, as I mentioned before, we wanted to re represent what a restrictive uh, fluid regimen might be like mm -hmm. and equally what a more traditional or liberal approach would be. So we obviously uh, surveyed our own practice, not just uh, in Melbourne, but also through Australia. Uh, we obviously included a survey of the literature. And, uh, you know, the, the smaller studies that have been done, um, the arguments around more or less fluid uh, have analysed the amounts of fluids other people have used. Um, and we want to represent in the restrictive arm what would be called a zero balance approach. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and equally in the liberal approach, it was not to give a lot of fluid, it was really to give what is traditionally been used uh, in recent decades. Mm. So, um, you know, although they're labelled restrictive and liberal groups, they're perhaps more accurately labelled as zero balanced versus a traditional care approach. Right. And so you decided to look at your primary endpoint uh, in this trial, something which is slightly different to what we would traditionally see. We might be used to seeing things like 30-day mortality. And you looked at one-year disability-free survival. Can you just explain why you did this? Um, well, I have a, a strong interest in patient-centred outcomes. Uh, I appreciate, I think many people do, that recovery after major surgery doesn't end at 30 days. Uh, and this is particularly so for the very elderly uh, or for those with major comorbidity. If uh, either of those groups have a serious complication of any sort, uh, we know from our experience and from feedback from patients and some of our other longer-term follow-up studies that their recovery pro profile goes on for many, many months after surgery and really out to at least six or 12 months after surgery. So we want to, wanted to encapsulate the whole recovery experience. Uh, equally importantly, uh, some complications that happen after surgery uh, most patients recover from. Others uh, lead to permanent um, disability. And the only way to properly, f I guess, um, integrate that information or to, you know, quantify that full recovery experience, uh, we, we measured the traditional outcomes out to 30 days after surgery, as has been happened in you know, nearly all surgical or anaesthesia studies in the past, but equally include this endpoint disability-free survival. Because patients tell us that what they care about is to get over or recover from their operation, to be able to get home as quickly as possible uh, after their uh, recovery in the hospital, and get back to their normal lives. Mm. Either it's back to work, uh, or if they're retired, back to their families, uh, their recreational activities, to lead the sort of life they had before their operation, or to minimise that reduction in their disability uh, that might otherwise happen from big surgery. And uh, we've validated uh, a few years back um, using the World Health Organisation Disability Assessment Schedule, the WHODAS measurement mm -hmm. scale, which is a validated measurement scale of disability. And we, we included that in our assessments, uh, not just um, early after surgery, but at three, six and 12 months after surgery. Okay. And uh, so obviously, uh, along with that primary endpoint, you included multiple uh, secondary endpoints. Um, so let's get down to the nitty gritty of it. Can you just tell us an overview of what, you're, what you found? Well, um, to first of all put priority on the primary endpoint, which is most important. Mm. So overall, in our trial, we found there was no significant difference in the rates of disability-free survival out to a year after surgery. And I guess importantly for those who have believed in a restrictive fluid approach, there was no evidence of improved disability-free survival up to one year after surgery. Right. Yep. Now, there are secondary endpoints, which are obviously also very important and perhaps tell a lot more information um, in the in-hospital in in period and also out to 30 days after surgery. We looked at serious complications like acute kidney injury, um, surgical site or wound infection, other sepsis complications, and of course overall um, hospital length of stay. 
And uh, in some of these endpoints, we found some marked differences between the groups. Most importantly, we showed that in patients in the restrictive fluid group had a higher rate of acute kidney injury, had a higher rate of surgical site infection, and had a higher rate for need for renal replacement, or basically dialysis, uh, up to 90 days after surgery. Right. And these were all statistically significantly uh, different, uh, and as I said, worse in the restrictive group. We also measured quality of recovery um, in the first 24 hours after surgery as a marker or a, uh, of the overall you know, recovery of, of patients. We used a validated scale, the 15 item core 15 scale. Mm -hmm. And there was a significant improvement in quality of recovery in the patients in the liberal group. Right, wow. So I guess it's, a, it's a, obviously a strong indication that uh, that perhaps restrictive fluid therapy isn't the way to go. And I, and I suppose that's born, the people have been using restrictive fluid therapy, particularly in anastomotic surgery, with the idea that maybe there's re reduction in bowel edema and potentially maybe a reduced risk of anastomotic leak and possibly also pulmonary edema. Did you find anything in the, the secondary endpoints to indicate whether the um, restrictive arm was better than the liberal arm for those sort of endpoints? Yeah, they, they, they were, of course, um, endpoints that we thought would be important, and we did collect that information in the trial. And I should probably emphasise at this point in time that um, you know, I was a believer in a more restrictive approach. I felt that um, uh, the traditional liberal IV fluids was probably seemed a bit unnatural and perhaps unnecessary. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, these findings surprised me as well, but I believe the findings are very robust. Now, coming back to your question... Um, we didn't see a statistically significant difference between the groups for either anastomotic leak um, or pulmonary edema. Right. Uh, there was a trend that would suggest there was more anastomotic leak in the restrictive group, mm -hmm. and that might surprise right. people, yeah. uh, but that was what we found. Um, but in contrast, uh, there was a trend, but not statistically significant, of a bit more pulmonary edema in the liberal group. So I think, you know, we can demonstrate that patients in the liberal group were getting the extra fluid that we anticipated. Yep. Uh, we certainly avoided or, or seemed to uh, avoid that uh, more often in the, in the restrictive group, but it wasn't significantly different. Right. And how about use of goal-directed fluid therapy? It's something which has become so popular, particularly within enhanced recovery protocols and pathways. Did you see any benefit using this sort of technology in, uh, in these patients? So again, I guess I think the common um, view at the moment is that goal-direct devices may not be necessary for all types of major surgery, mm -hmm. that the particular benefits shown by previous studies uh, would appear to be in the at-risk or the higher-risk surgical group. That was our study population. Yeah. So we collected the information around the use of any particular device, what the thresholds were for giving fluid boluses, and a lot of that information we're going to publish uh, later. Right. Um, but certainly when the devices were used, it made no differential effect either on the primary endpoint or on the incidence of the complications I mentioned before, that being acute kidney injury or... Um, uh, surgical site infection, that in fact whether or not you use such a device didn't seem 
to make any difference, that the harm was still there on the, uh, in the restrictive group yep. with AKI and surgical site infection, uh, the lack of benefit um, uh, for the longer-term disability-free survival unaffected by whether or not a goal-directed device was used. Mm. So I guess the, the next question is really that we know and we're so concerned about AKI uh, because of the association with increased complications and increased mortality. And you obviously found a significant difference between the two groups. Why didn't this reflect in the primary endpoints, the, the disability-free survival at one year? Yeah, so some people might think, look, you're telling us that those in the restricted group had higher rates of surgical site infection, higher rates of acute kidney injury. On the basis of that information alone, why didn't that manifest mm. out to poor disability-free survival? I think there are two possible explanations for this. The most likely one, in fact, is that although we had nearly twice the, the, the risk of acute kidney injury in the restrictive group, overall the incidence of acute kidney injury was quite low, well under 10%, closer to 5%. Yeah. So only a small proportion of patients having major sur abdominal surgery actually get AKI, and although you might double the risk, the rate or risk uh, with restrictive fluid, overall, most patient, patients don't get it, and therefore, most patients will have a pretty good disability-free survival. Mm. And it's the same argument with surgical site infection. The other part of the explanation is that at least in a proportion of those patients, perhaps in many, that they will eventually recover despite that particular complication or even that combination of complications. That the overall, the, uh, the weight or impact of overall complications uh, in the trial were not high enough um, or at least differently enough in the restrictive group to lead to a difference at one year after surgery. I think that's clinically valuable information. Mm -hmm. um, it's reassuring at one level. Uh, equally reassuring is to know that well over 80% of all patients in the trial actually had a very good disability-free survival. So in terms of the um, uh, subgroup analysis that you've done and and, and certainly I know that people across the world may look at their own country because you've identified the results depending on the countries. The, the, the subgroup analysis seems to indicate that uh, particularly the, the New Zealand patient group um, had a strong indication towards the liberal, liberal arm. Um, whereas, you, can you explain the statistics to a, to a layman, an statist non-statistician, about how when you look at, for example, the UK plot, where it appears that it, there's no effect, um, is that true? Um, so I don't want to terrify <laughs> listeners about statistics, but just to simplify what we did in the secondary analyses, we actually do what's known as a subgroup analysis, and we look at all sorts of both patient, uh, but also geographical and other factors uh, perioperative factors, for instance, and use of goal-directed devices mm. and so on, to see whether or not the overall findings were different in any particular subgroup. And what we identified with our primary endpoint, the disability-free survival, that, that there was a, a, a statistically significant country effect. What that means is that there seemed to be a difference in the overall findings in at least one of the countries in the trial. So we then follow that with a second statistical test to see, okay, which country had that different effect? And we identified that patients uh, um, uh, in New Zealand that were enrolled in the study um, had a, a clearly uh, worse disability-free survival in the restrictive arm of the study. 
Um, now, our interpretation of that is that that might just be um, a spurious finding because you, with subgroup testing, you're doing a lot of secondary analyses. Mm. And it, just by multiple testing, it, you might get a, a result that's by chance yep. less than 0.05. But equally, when you look at the other countries, and in, in, the, in, your, in your case, you've asked about the United Kingdom, uh, that p-value is not statistically significant. In other words, the results of the patients enrolled in the UK alone is no different from the overall finding. Right. And therefore, you can't argue that, well, there's a different effect in, in the UK yep. or North America, for instance. Fine. So... I guess the next, well, what we all want to know is really how we translate this into our day-to-day -day practice. Um, is it time that we, we change ERAS pathways across the world? Do we throw out the goal-directive fluid therapy device? Um, and is it something that we should adapt a more liberal strategy, or is it just simply we should now avoid a restrictive strategy? Yeah, so I think this is, this is the bottom line, and this is the really important, I think, conclusions from the study. I think, just starting with the fluids, first of all, mm. I think we've got very clear evidence to show that there is no beneficial effect of a restrictive or zero balance approach. That, in fact, we should be giving more fluid than that. Mm -hmm. And uh, the best indication we have of is the amount of fluids as we used in the Liberal group in the relief study. And that information is available in the full publication. Yeah. But, other, but basically a more traditional approach. I do want to emphasise once again that uh, that does not mean that you can give all out endless amounts of fluids. So they're, they're, it would simply be illogical and certainly dangerous to give excessive IV fluids. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a moderately liberal, based on traditional good practice. Um, in terms of, um, uh, the, I guess, the secondary questions, whether or not a goal-directed device has a place in major mm -hmm. abdominal surgery, or whether or not uh, the ERAS pathways are wrong, um, my... Uh, again, the, the emphasis for me is that we did not formally test those in a, uh, a reliable, randomised way in the trial. We did not question either of those. All we're saying is that whether or not you use such an approach doesn't change the results of our study. That, yep. that is all and no more. Yep. Um, coming back to the goal-directed device, that is still, in my view, an open question. Mm -hmm. There may well be many circumstances where it would be very beneficial for patient outcome. That requires further study. In terms of the ERAS pathways, I'm a strong believer of ERAS. I think they are based, uh, most of the items in an ERAS pathway are based on very good evidence uh, or otherwise very good uh, rationale. We've uh, um, evaluated one particular item, and that is the amount of IV fluids used, and that is the only item we have tested mm -hmm. in the trial. And our findings would suggest that, in fact, we should be giving more fluids when IV fluids are needed um, than we have uh, or is often recommended in an ERAS pathway. That, that is all we're saying, yep. no more than that. Yep. Uh, we also believe that to transition from IV fluids to oral fluids is, uh, I think, uh, both a safe and best practice, and that should continue after this trial. Yeah, right. So, I mean, there's, there's clearly a lot to take from this trial, um, and I understand that there are several sub-studies planned in the data set. Um, where, what's your attention focused on next? Well, we've got an amazing amount of data, um, complete 
both uh, intraoperative uh, and postoperative data and, of course, longer-term follow-up data for 3,000 patients having a major abdominal surgery. So it's a very valuable data step. And mm. step we've um, pre-planned a number of important sub-studies, yep. one particularly around further detail around of acute kidney injury and mm. particularly the role of urine output during and after surgery because yep. we really like to know, is that actually a reliable marker of renal health or mm -hmm. renal happiness mm -hmm. during and after surgery? And that, I think, is an open question. Um, the use and value of goal-directed devices, uh, we're going to do a lot more analysis around those. Uh, the effect um, on um, other organ injury and, and other patient aspects of patient recovery and the relationship between complications early after surgery and longer-term disability-free survival. These are really important secondary analyses that we, will, we are planning to do, we'll do this year, and we hope to publish a series of papers uh, in journals um, over the next uh, 12 months or so. Fantastic. Well, it's, uh, it's an incredible study and uh, one that we're going to take a lot out of. I understand it's going to be published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and that should be out uh, now. Yeah, so that's, uh, we're obviously very pleased with that. It, uh, it's, it is a major journal with a high impact. Mm -hmm. um, the full details of the trial, including a lot of supplementary information, will be available um, from the journal or through the journal website. If you've heard the podcast, the paper is now freely available. Great. Well, thank you very much, Paul. And uh, I look forward to reading it in the New England Journal of Medicine. Thank you, Johnny.